And it's a huge star island off the main coast, uh, sort of like the Madagascar of the Milky Way. Um, there's the territory of Pishmish, and that has a huge nebula that I don't think Hubble has ever even imaged and doesn't even seem to have a name. Um, that's one of the good things about uh, being able to use this new Gaia data is that you're ac actually sometimes mapping regions that no one knows anything about and no one has seen before. Hi, gang, and welcome back to our final Selden Crisis episode of 2022. I wasn't planning to release another one so soon, but I had an accidental encounter with something way too cool to pass up when I stumbled onto an account on Mastodon called Galaxy Map. Kevin Jardine, the author of this feed, is a cartographer from the Netherlands who builds beautiful maps of our home galaxy using data from the European Space Agency, ESA, Gaia spacecraft. He's figured out a way to visualize this data in some really interesting ways. I love maps of all kinds, but I'd never seen anything quite like these ones. I decided I really wanted to share these with you folks who have been inhabiting Asimov's galactic empire with me for the past couple of years, so I got in touch with Kevin and asked him to join us. Welcome to Selden Crisis, Kevin. Glad to join you, Joel. It's only recently that we've been able to construct uh, detailed maps of our home galaxy thanks to the Gaia spacecraft, and I'm really looking forward to seeing them getting used. Well, our listeners know a little about Asimov's version of the Milky Way galaxy as he described it in Foundation and some of his other books. There are places like Trantor, the metal-covered capital of the galaxy at its core, the outer fringe worlds of Terminus and its neighbors Anacreon and the other worlds of the Four Kingdoms. There is Corel, Hober Mallow's opponent in the Merchant Princes. The unfortunate Suena, which revolted from a tyrannical imperial viceroy and con consequently got nuked for it. And of course, there is the vacation planet Calgan, where the mule and later Lord Stettin set up shop. Asimov just made up all these places, of course, because he didn't have any real maps to use back in the 1940s. What I find fascinating about your work is that there are many colorful regions we now know of that definitely do exist, and you are helping to make them understandable as real places that could possibly be visited by humanity or our distant descendants in the far future. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how our understanding of the galaxy's structure has changed in the past 80 years since Foundation was written? Well, when the Foundation series was written, astronomers already knew some basic stuff about the Milky Way. It's a flattened disk galaxy with a central bulge surrounded by a large halo filled with globular clusters. Uh, and, you know, part of that we can just see by looking at the sky, and part of it was some research that was done at um, Harvard University with globular clusters uh, in in the 30s and 40s. Um, and shortly after the Foundation series was written, radio astronomers started to observe structures in the velocity of hydrogen gas. And they started giving names to these structures after constellations in those directions, uh, such as Perseus or Sagittarius or Carina or Centaurus. Um, and astronomers have used those early hydrogen maps to speculate on spiral arms in the Milky Way. And these have often appeared in artistic impressions, but 
in the absence of a major star survey, actually astronomers don't agree on even basic questions like how many spiral arms our galaxy has or where they're located. About the only fairly firm addition astronomers have made since Asimov wrote the Foundation series is that the bulge uh, contains a bar. But even there, then, astronomers debate about how the bar is shaped, how long is it, what its angle is relative to the sun, etc. And this is why the Gaia Star Survey is so revolutionary. For the first time, we have distance estimates for about 1.5 billion stars. And this has mapped out much of the galactic plane to about 4 kiloparsecs, or almost 15,000 light years. It goes much further above the dust in the galactic plane, and we are even starting to get some results on the bar. And amazingly, Gaia can detect even faint star wobbles, enough to catalog multiple star systems and ultimately even exoplanets. By the end of the mission, in about 10 years or so, Gaia is estimated to have detected some 70,000 exoplanets. Yeah, 70,000. Um, that is exciting. Um, our listeners and those who have read ahead, especially into the sequels, uh, will recognize uh, Gaia if they have, don't know it from you know the popular zeitgeist. But it's a word that uh, first entered um, our popular consciousness in 1970 when James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis wrote a book hypothesizing that the Earth was a self-regulating living being. And the word comes from the Greek goddess of ultimate maternal power, the ultimate Earth Mother. Um, Asimov became aware of this a decade or so before he resumed writing Foundation in the early 80s and integrated into the plot of the sequels we haven't covered yet. And as I mentioned in the intro, it's also the name of a spacecraft built by the ESA and is the source of much of the data you used to create your amazing maps. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this program, the uh, Gaia program, and how you access and use the data it has produced? Um, sure. Uh, Gaia was launched uh, in uh, the year 2013, and it took a few years for it to start delivering data. And the first major data release, which was DR2, uh, was released in 2018. Um, so it's a relatively new uh, system. Uh, it's got two op optical telescopes uh, fixed to a platform that rotates at a very precise speed and several instruments that can collect light in various optical frequencies, uh, basically white, blue, and red. It sends a massive stream of data every day back to the European Space Agency, and it compares star positions against a database of about half a million quasars, so quasars are the very active hearts of galaxies which are located very far away. So essentially they're fixed in the sky and they can form a celestial reference system. Mm -hmm. And Gaia can measure really small shifts in a star position as it orbits the sun. Uh, and so it has a system that's a little bit like a survey does on Earth where the, a surveyor um, looks at an object from uh, one angle and then moves the surveying instrument to a different angle and looks at the object uh, from a different angle and then uses trigonometry to figure out how far away that object is. Uh, and Gaia does the same thing, except that its baseline is the orbit of the Earth around the sun. So it's pretty large. 
Uh, and the data that Gaia collects is made available to a large group of more than 400 scientists uh, called DPAC. And that stands for the Gaia Data Processing and Analysis Consortium, which is chaired by Leiden University Professor Anthony Brown here in the Netherlands. And I've been lucky enough to have been made an honorary member of the DPAC coordinating uh, unit uh, number nine. I'm not a professional astronomer. My degree is in uh, pure mathematics, actually. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, um, the coordinating unit uh, number nine is responsible for the data archive, visualization, and public outreach. And so as a member of DPAC, uh, uh, guy astronomers can send me data uh, and sometimes it's before it's public release, and I can use that for my maps and other visualizations that I do for them. I'm just curious how you become an honorary member of this uh, DPAC. Well, I've run a website, which unfortunately I haven't updated for a few years, called galaxymap.org. Uh, and so it became, I became known for professional, you know, by professional astronomers. And I've been running this website for about... 20 years now, I think. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I started out using um, data from a predecessor to Gaia called Hipparchus. Uh, and uh, so when Gaia was launched, uh, I approached some of the astronomers, and it turned out they already knew about my work and uh, were quite happy to have me involved. Cool. That's great. Um, one of the, the 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 neatest things about your maps is the way you've transformed these actual places in space and turned them into something resembling the kind of maps you see in fantasy novels and video games with like kingdoms, forests, mountains, little castles and cities and stuff, and the and the seas around the land masses. Uh, really kind of gives them the, the feeling of being like real places. And I always love that when I'm reading a novel to see to relate to a place you know and my first thought was that this one looked like these looked like something out of Tolkien and and then I thought no these places are actually real places um so they might not look, look like the way you've represented them but they there are they are real places so uh tell us a little about your process of how you do that and if you can introduce to us uh, some of the the ones you really like, the ones that really pique your interest? Well, uh, it's a challenge to create these maps because no one has ever mapped the Milky Way in this much detail before. Um, you know, not in terms of like a top-down uh, map showing all these different star formation regions and star clusters and things like that. Um, so I've been experimenting with different approaches. And one of the key decisions I made early on was to map the density of young hot stars of types O and B. So these are uh, very rare uh, stars. It's a tiny fraction of the overall data set, uh, just a bit less than a million stars. Um, so that sounds like a lot, but data's, uh, the total data set is 1.5 billion. So um, it's, uh, uh, it's a fairly small fraction of them. And I pick these stars partly because they are believed to mark the positions of spiral arms and also because they're young and haven't drifted very far away from the star formation regions where most of them are born. And older stars tend to drift randomly, and mapping those gives me a pretty fuzzy map compared to these OB stars. Um, also, um, these stars, these OB stars, are the stars that illuminate 
most of the famous uh, nebulae that Hubble has been taking pictures of for so many years. And so because I know where these stars are, I can um, also locate um, a few hundred uh, nebula of the kind of Im beautiful images that Hubble has been taking, like the Orion or the Eagle Nebula, and I can put them on map my maps as well. And also, um, there's a group of Gaia astronomers that have been focused on star clusters, and they've sent me positions for about 2,000 star clusters. And another group has been focused on uh, dust, and they can actually use the color data uh, that Gaia has been collecting to map dust clouds. And so I can also put dust on my maps. And if you've ever seen uh, images of galaxies uh, outside our own, you can uh, tell that there's a lot of dust in those galaxies, and that's an important part of the image. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of information that I can put in my maps, and I think sometimes that people are a little bit overwhelmed by it. Uh, so in the last uh, month or so, I've been experimenting with a simplified design inspired by fantasy maps, uh, like the Middle Earth map in Lord of the Rings. And so I've been um, simplifying the map and actually using a lot of uh, terrestrial cartographic uh, metaphors. Uh, so, for example, I'm representing uh, young hot star density as forests, um, dust is represented as mountain ranges, and nebula and star clusters as towns and castles and other structures. And I, I wasn't really sure um, what it would turn out to be and whether people would like it. But personally, I really do like the result. And I think people find it easier to absorb the Gaia data when it is presented in a more familiar format. Um, but I am finding it hard to single out a favorite region on my maps because there are so many fascinating places. Um, you know, maybe I could just mention a few, like Cygnus X, for example, is a quite a mysterious large star formation region in, in the uh, local arm. And it has an amazing uh, star cluster, which is called Sig OB2, that has 70 ultra-hot O-type stars. Uh, and that's a huge percentage of the known O-type stars in the Milky Way. Yeah, so it's amazing that there are so many of them in one location. And there's also a, another large area, which I've called on the fantasy map, the Isle of uh, Cassiopeia. And it's a huge star island off the main coast, uh, sort of like the Madagascar of the Milky Way. Hmm. Um, there's the territory of Pishmish, and that has a huge nebula that I don't think Hubble has ever even imaged and doesn't even seem to have a name. Um, that's one of the good things about uh, being able to use this new Gaia data is that you're ac actually sometimes mapping regions that no one knows anything about and no one has seen before. Um, there's uh, an area uh, of uh, young hot stars that I've uh, called Puppet City. Uh, and it's a sort of lost city because it's, um, it's a massive region of young hot stars, but astronomers have debated for decades whether it even exists. And if it does, how far away it is. Uh, and Gaius confirmed that it's real and come up with a specific distance. And then there's um, the Carina uh, Empire, um, which, of course, has the famous uh, Carina uh, Nebula. And it's got a huge concentration of nebula, not just the Carina Nebula, but many others, and star clusters in one general region. So it sort of acts like uh, 
I don't know, uh, Minas uh, Tirith uh, of uh, Lord of the Rings. It's this big kind of capital city uh, that dominates this part of the galaxy. Yeah, so, I mean, those are just some uh, of, of a lot of interesting places. The um, uh, That picture that the web took uh, is now my desktop, and I don't think I'm alone in having that as my desktop wallpaper. Uh, yeah, the the uh, it's just so gorgeous. Um, and I, I'm curious how web has um, affected, you know, any of your observations. Uh, has it had any impact on what you're doing on any of the pictures they've taken? Um, well, uh, the, uh, the web telescope is, uh, the Jace web telescope is quite new. Uh, and, uh, so of course I follow a lot of astronomers who put up images. I'm very interested in, um, uh, the details of it. Uh, and what I find personally is that Gaia and, uh, Webb and Hubble and some of these other, uh, optical or infrared telescopes really make a good combination because, uh, Gaia can tell us where these things are and how they interact with other objects in the Milky Way. Uh, and uh, so we can use these beautiful images and at the same time actually place them on a real map. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, the, the, what you said earlier about uh, finding these nebulae that aren't even mapped or there aren't images of them, uh, it reminds me of like Star Trek, you know, just how they like will stumble into some new, new nebula or something and like that, and that always just really struck my imagination is that there are things out there that we don't even know about that you could just like fly to and see for the first time. So that I, um, your, your project is like almost like having a little enterprise, uh, to, to go out and find things in that respect. Uh, these things sound so cool. Um, all these places you're describing, um, and I would love to be able to point my listeners to a way of looking at them for themselves. And, uh, you know, we normally, I do, I do show notes that I think 90% of people, maybe 99% of people never look at, uh, where I have links to various things. So I'm hoping that you can maybe help me, uh, populate those show notes with some, uh, places where, uh, they can see some of these things you're talking about. Oh yeah. I'd be happy to do that for sure. So um, Asimov didn't know about the uh, enormous black hole at the center of our galaxy and the bar you're talking about. Uh, and it seems like uh, Gaia's findings might have complicated the picture he was painting quite a bit, uh, such as having the capital of the galaxy at, at its center. And I'm wondering if you can tell us anything about what this region might really be like and how habitable it could possibly be. Um, well, the center of the Milky Way and, and the galactic bar in general are very different than the region around the sun. Uh, on average, the stars are much older, although there are some young clusters too. And also the stars are typically packed uh, much closer together. Uh, and the regions at the heart of young dense clusters or near black holes would tend to have too much radiation for life to exist, for sure. But elsewhere in the bar... Um, and, you know, somewhere in the general galactic center, there might be actually a number of advantages uh, for uh, galactic civilizations. Um, older stars uh, would have uh, systems with more dust and minerals. 
making planets very likely and also giving life and civilizations uh, more time to evolve and plenty of minerals to exploit. Uh, interstellar travel would be easier uh, with the stars closer together, uh, although, of course, you'd also have to worry about getting too close to a supernova uh, yeah. because the galactic center is pretty active. But overall, I, I don't think that the, um, the galactic bar or places near the galactic center would be that hostile to life. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's, I was just thinking about the history of humanity and learning things and how, you know, as recently as like half a millennium ago, uh, we thought we were the center of everything, uh, that, you know, the, the earth was the very center and, you know, we are that uh, so special in that way. And then, uh, gradually we've learned more and more that's kind of, uh, dashed that ex that, uh, realization that we're not that important. Uh, we're now, you know, just one star that's kind of out in the boonies, it looks like, you know, it's not even that close to the center. And this even makes it more like that in thinking that, you know, maybe, maybe there are much more advanced and long lasting civilizations closer to the center that, you know, just couldn't even imagine caring about what's going on here out, out on the very fringes. Uh, we're like, uh, I don't know, uh, somewhere in Idaho or something, uh, I, I don't know, or farther, <laughs> the Yukon territories. I, I don't know, um, but that's interesting. I, one of our past guests, um, an astrophysicist named Stephen Webb from England, uh, described a, a, a very compelling reason why yes. a galactic empire wouldn't be workable even if humans could eventually spread out throughout most of it. And this is the incredible amount of time that would pass while attempting to communicate, communicate across any significant distance. By the time the emperor finds out there's trouble brewing in Terminus, the residents of that region are long dead and gone and vice versa. So a lot of the uh, Asimov's uh, narrative structure kind of falls apart when you think about it in that way. Um, what other uh, problems can you imagine that would prop up and cop up in uh, trying to inhabit and run a galactic empire? Well, the, the first point is a matter of time scale, um, and it depends on how long lived the beings are. Uh, and if you're talking about uh, someone uh, with a human life scale, no doubt you know galactic distances are just enormous. But if there were beings that lived for millions of years, um, then uh, galactic distances wouldn't be so extreme. Um, and, you know, it's technically possible to imagine that, I guess. Um, but the other issue is that most empires have some kind of economic basis. Uh, and it's hard to see what materials might be light enough and valuable enough to transport for light years to make some kind of galactic economy work. Um, and, and, and that's why a lot of science fiction stories invent ultra-rare materials like dilithium crystals or unobtainium. Um, but actually, as far as we know, most materials useful for a galactic civilization or for a civilization of any kind, local or whatever, are pretty widely available in local systems. So, you know, the question is, what is the motivation for building larger structures? I mean, you could see something like peace treaties happening or something like that. But uh, a, a, a civilization that is galactic in extent, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, our last guest, uh, 
Dr. Robert Zubrin, um, a really interesting guy, heads the Mars Society. Um, he described to me a method of transmission of life from star to star known as panspermia. And he made a point, whoa, it sounds like fireworks going off. This is the end of the year. Yes, I'm afraid <laughs> so. It's a very big thing here in the Netherlands. It's not too loud. Um well, anyway, Zubrin made the point that the position of the stars in our galaxy are not fixed in place. They all orbit the center of the galaxy over an extremely long time span. But in much smaller time increments, they wander around it to a smaller degree, above and below the galactic plane, and occasionally some come into close contact with each other, close enough that their Oort clouds, that's the the region fairly distant from the, the central star, but still gravitationally bound to it, uh, they intermix to some degree. And out in these Oort clouds, there are a lot of frozen bodies that are just kind of hanging out in there. And when, if two Oort clouds would intermix to some degree, it would destabilize those Oort clouds and those, those bodies. And some of them would fall in towards their center stars, or they could even fall into the other star. So they could pass information between star systems in this way. And he thinks that uh, this could result in enough in cometary bombardments of the inner planets bringing new life in to to make uh, to any that just happen to have the conditions available for the that new life to to germinate on those planets. Uh, he thinks it's very likely that Earth life arose from one of these exchanges, perhaps more than once, and that we may have already seeded other star systems with life. Uh, from your understanding, does this seem reasonable? And do you think we will ever have enough data to understand the past and future paths of stars that may be candidates for this kind of intermixing with our solar systems? Well, I, I do find the whole uh, panspermia uh, hypothesis really quite interesting. And personally, I'm uh, I'm open to it, but uh, I'm not a biologist, uh, certainly not an exobiologist, so I can't really speculate on that. But jumping onto planets orbiting passing star systems is a very real possibility. And in fact, several professional astronomers have already been using Gaia data and published articles looking at the next few stars that will pass near the sun. So there's already a list of these uh, stars uh, and in our relatively sparse neighborhood around the sun, uh, we can't expect a visitor more than once every one or two million years. Um, but in the galactic bar region, uh, that might happen a lot more often. And yes, that could be dangerous and cause something like the dinosaur extinction event with um, comets or asteroids being disturbed and falling into the uh, uh, closer into the uh, center of the solar system where the sun is, or, or where, the, where the earth is, um, but presumably a civilization is capable of jumping across star systems can also redirect the disturbed comet. So, you know, in, in theory, um, if humanity is still around in a million years or so, uh, we could take advantage of a passing star to send probes there or even uh, settle on a planet. And so that's kind of interesting. And it is a different way of thinking about spreading around the galaxy because we may not have to go to other stars. They might come to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a kind of a new thing I didn't realize about uh, until um, not just uh, what Zubrin told me, but um, earlier I had seen 
when it, there's a there's a great YouTube channel called uh, Cool Worlds, and they they did a study or he he talks about a study on that that shows how how often stars come very close to one another, and how it's not necessary to to travel tens of light years necessarily to. I'm hoping you can hear me. <laughs> Yeah, I can hear you. I'm really sorry about the, uh, the fireworks. No, no problem. I don't think it's too loud in the recording, but we'll find out. Um, but uh, one thing you said just piqued my interest, which is about um, the stars that may have passed near the sun or that will pass near the sun. Um, and I'm wondering about the reverse. I'm wondering if we could figure out what stars have been near our sun and have passed, have have gone away, uh, and may, might those be candidates for Earth life that they picked up when they were close to the sun? Well, again, it's it's possible. I, I can't really speculate on that, but uh, there is also a list of stars that pass by, um, and you know, of course, there's also increasing interest in um, I don't know what you call them, uh, uh, interstellar rocks. Interstellar oh, asteroids, Numa, whatever that was. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I didn't mention it because I can't pronounce it. But uh, <laughs> yes, um, that, those kind. There's a whole class of objects that astronomers are looking at closely, and it could be actually uh, that if we start actively looking for them, we'll find that there's quite a few, and there may even be some already in our solar system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be really interesting to see if we could find uh, evidence of of life on those or artifacts of some kind. Um, so anyway, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what the future holds for Gaia and other proposed projects for understanding the shape of the galaxy? Um, sure. Um, the uh, Gaia itself uh, still has a number of data releases and most of the uh, measurements that it's going to take haven't happened yet, uh, or at least haven't been recorded and released to the public, I should say. Um, and uh, it's probably going to continue on for another four or five years. Uh, there's going to be a data release uh, four in 2025, and then the final data release, I'm not sure exactly when, but somewhere around 2030. Um, so uh, there's a lot more data that's coming and more accurate maps. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, there's also going to be an incredible uh, catalog of exoplanets. It could be up to about 70,000 uh, exoplanets uh, around the Milky Way uh, that we'll know about that we wouldn't have known about because of uh, without Gaia. Um, so, so, but then the question is what happens next? Uh, and the problem that Gaia has um, is dust. Uh, and there's a lot of dust in the Milky Way. And after a while, Gaia can't see through it anymore. Uh, and so there are limits uh, to the region that uh, Gaia can map, especially in the galactic plane where most of the stars are. Uh, and we need to have some kind of uh, surveying system that has a system like Gaia, but does it in frequencies that can see through dust. And we don't know how to do that right now. Um, there's a technique that works for microwaves uh, given off by certain massive stars called masers. Um, but it's very time consuming and we only have about 200 locations mapped. So that's a huge difference between Gaia's um, 1.5 billion stars and only about 200 masers. 
Um, but but still, I, I think we should fund more of that maser astronomy, especially in the fourth quadrant of the Milky Way, which you can only see from the southern hemisphere, and we have hardly have any maser observations there yet. There's also a proposal for a Gaia follow-up mission that uses infrared, um, and that would get us a lot further, at least on this side of the galactic bar, but it requires new technology. And even if that is funded and developed soon, the reality of science projects is that the data won't start flowing for probably another 30 years. Uh, and uh, so uh, we probably won't actually get new data other than what Guy is giving us, uh, in a large scale anyways, for a generation. Uh, but maybe we need that generation to teach kids about what we are learning now about the Milky Way. Yeah, it's certainly different than when I was in school in how much we know. So, you know, I was very inspired by the the limited maps we had then and the limited visualizations we had at that time. I can't imagine how in, intriguing it must be for um, for kids now with this kind of stuff that you're developing to to start. Well, another thing I was really thinking about is how in science fiction you know, everything is always made up now because we just don't have the data, have, have the picture. So, you know, we, we create our own ideas of what planets are where and what star systems are where and all that. Uh, but once we have a more complete picture, I can imagine drama being set in these places, you know, future drama uh, of actual uh, places. And you could have them mapped in, you know, so you can, get a, a better picture of where things are going. That's one of the things when I'm reading Asimov that I kind of, I, I'm always wishing there was a better map of like, where is Sowena? How, do, how does it relate to Terminus? And, you know, where are the, all these planets and star systems and everything? Well, one of the frustrating things for me about the new Star Trek shows uh, is that in theory, in the Star Trek, Star Trek is set in the Milky Way. It's, it's sort of in a real galaxy and that's supposed to be our galaxy. Um, and yet they're not taking advantage of the new data from Guy at all. Uh, and there is the chance uh, to redo uh, the maps that science fiction is using to make them a lot more realistic. Uh, and actually, there are a lot of interesting things in the real Milky Way that maybe science fiction writers wouldn't have thought of. Uh, and so there's a good advantage, uh, you know, in, in using real stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. So... Um uh, let our, let's let our listeners know uh, where they can find you online and how they can interact with you. Can you give us any information about that? Well, for years, I was active on Twitter, and my uh, handle there is at galaxy underscore map. So don't forget the underscore, at galaxy underscore map. Um, but because of various problems with Twitter, um, I, more and more, I've moved to Mastodon. Uh, and you can find me there at the same handle at galaxy underscore map at mastodon social. And I have to say, uh, I'm the same. I moved over from Twitter not too long ago uh, for, for the same reasons you're talking about. And uh, you are one of the first like really cool discoveries I made on Mastodon, just exploring the feed. And uh, so it was, it was great to see that you don't have to be on Twitter to find cool stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's part of the reason why I've been <clears throat> posting so much on Mastodon, actually, is 
I'm hoping to, you know, be part of the group of people that sparks that into an, a really exciting place to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to take some time. I'm doing the same. I'm I'm doing most of my posting on Mastodon and, and uh, cross-posting it to Twitter, um, you know, automatically. Uh, so that that's the the only problem there is that I have a longer character limit on Mastodon. So my my uh, the, when they get tweeted over, they they get truncated. But then there's a link to the Mastodon tweet, so hopefully it brings a few people over. Yeah, well, I love that a lot of the f- new features with Mastodon, longer posts and the ability to edit anything. Ability to I edit, edit that's feature so all important. the time. Oh, me too. Me too. I I just it drives me crazy to tweet something. It doesn't matter how many times I look at it before I press the button to tweet it. Uh, then I will see the 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 embarrassing typo. You know, every time, uh, and it's so great to be able to fix that. Well. I, oh, you mentioned something uh, as we were preparing for this about uh, wanting to create a VR Starship project, or maybe I picked that up from your Mastodon profile. Uh, can you talk about what you had in mind for that? Um, sure. Most of the maps that I've done up to this point are traditional top-down 2D maps. Uh, and uh, I'm really quite interested in uh, trying to find ways of producing 3D maps uh, and being able to travel through them. Uh, and uh, so what I'm doing right now is uh, building a, a web XR application. So it's a web application that works uh, using VR uh, headsets. Uh, and it will enable you to travel to about 35 different locations around the Milky Way uh, and uh, then get a, a semi-realistic view of what it would actually look like at that location. Uh, and then um, you can actually bring up uh, a map and you bring up details and you can search for objects and uh, do all the sorts of things that you would expect to be able to do on a starship. Uh, so I'm hoping to uh, be able to deliver that next year and that will be a, a completely different and I hope very exciting way of, of, of absorbing the Gaia data. That sounds so cool, and I will definitely be following up to find that because it's, I, I've been wanting that my whole life. Uh, so that's great that somebody's thinking about building it. And thanks for, to Gaia for giving us the data to, to populate the worlds that we can explore. But uh, it makes me think in, uh, in Foundation, there's several places where Asimov talks about similar kind of uh, 3D projections. Um, he he calls there's one called the lens when they're uh, the mule and Han Pritcher are going out looking for the um, the second foundation, and it's supposed to be like this 3D projection that you can go into and zoom in on any and anywhere and see it from any orientation and like just find you know all kinds of new stuff. He's basically descri- describing something like a VR spaceship. Yeah. Well, I, I'm finding it an interesting, interesting coincidence that uh, the VR headset technology, the ability to actually immerse yourself in a 3D environment, uh, is developing at the same time as uh, the Gaia uh, data set, which really requires that in order to understand it. Um, it's really a perfect combination. Yeah, and and the big difference there is that you know, on here on Earth, as normal human beings, we don't really need 3D 
headsets because we see the world in 3D all around us without wearing anything. So there are a lot of the, you really need to have something to explore that requires that kind of uh, visualization capability. And this sounds like an ideal use case for that. It's on this. Yep. So anyway, this has been a uh, spectacular journey through the stars. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us on such short notice and over the holidays at that. Um, as <laughs> as we hear, I wish you the best on your continuing mapping projects and hope you have a wonderful new year. And you too, Joel. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Well, that was another superb guest, and I want to expand a little on how I found Kevin's work online. I have an unfortunate tendency to wake up in the middle of the night and often have trouble getting back to sleep. Often I'll open up my laptop and look at the news or whatever chaos is happening on Twitter these days, and that's not always the best medicine for getting back to sleep. Lately, I've been substituting Mastodon, which I've found to be a more peaceful experience, and I'm slowly connecting with more and more content authors I appreciate there. What's great about Mastodon is that there is no algorithm feeding you stuff that it wants you to get excited about. You have to do that for yourself. In this case, I found a post by Galaxy Map, uh, the handle at galaxymap at mastodon.social. You need two at signs in every Mastodon address, first for the uh, username and the second one's for the, where they are on Mastodon, which server they're on. So that's at galaxy underscore map at mastodon.social. I found his, um, his feed had these intriguing fantasy maps showing things like the Carina Empire, the Forest of Centaurus, the Kingdom of Vila, all laid out like the geography of Middle-earth and got instantly drawn in. After scanning a few more of these posts, I managed to fall asleep, and when I awoke, I realized that Kevin had fed me some outstanding dream material. I can't remember them in particular, but I know I was cruising all over the galaxy and exploring some amazing places. I also started thinking what a great guest he could be for Selden Crisis, if he was willing. And impulsive chap that I am, I reached out and offered him a slot as soon as he had the time, and he jumped on it. The whole time from discovery to recording was less than a week. Every episode has show notes, and I often mention I'll be putting links there, but this time you really, really want to take advantage of them and click on a few of those links. Kevin has provided me with a list of some great visual resources he's created, including both science and fantasy-oriented maps like we've been discussing. Definitely take the time to visit the episode page at seldoncrisis.net to see these wonderful maps. There will also be a transcript of our conversation available there, and a link to the active transcript for reading and listening will be available quite soon. If I could ask a small favor, it would be great if you would click the Reviews tab while you're on the website and add a few words. It's always hugely appreciated. Lastly, before I sign off in the waning hours of 2022, I want to thank all of my many listeners and collaborators for making this an amazing year for the podcast. 
we covered the last volume of the Foundation Trilogy and introduced a wonderful new cast of voice actors, including Megan Sky Hale as Arcady Darrell, John Blumenfeld as Homer Munn, Zach Kreitler as an imperious first citizen of the galaxy, and of course his wonderful wife Amanda Kreitler returning to play several characters, including Lady Kalia, the spirited maid Polly, and of course the charming Mama. They all deserve some kind of award, maybe a potty or something. Uh, I think we can do better. So suggestions are welcome for what to call their prizes. I'd also like to thank all of the year's guests, including indie sci-fi writers Tobias Cabral and Erasmo Acosta, Sarita1046 for her fanfic, Priya for her Foundation TV analysis, Paul Levinson and Danielle Pajak for their wonderful conversations on Star Trek, the Orville, art, and other sci-fi topics, our first returning guest, Nathaniel Goldberg, for his philosophical analyses, and our most recent guest before this episode, Mars Society President Robert Zubrin. What a year. I look forward to another great year on the podcast coming up when we'll plunge into those sequels and welcome a few more guests and maybe some returning ones as well. Last but least, I want to send a special thanks to my son Jeremy McKinnon for his excellent sound design work, Tom Barnes for his work on the ever-evolving theme music, and Mike Topping for the Immortal logo. Also, I want to thank one of our my patron, Patreon supporters named Basil for helping to develop the active transcript feature, which if you haven't checked it out, please do so. It's still being developed, but it's it's a wonderful way to look through the the podcast as it's being as you're listening to it or to just read it and you can search it and find um, whatever you're looking for that you heard maybe um, great resource to check out that it's always going to be at the top of the show notes uh, a link to the active transcript so may you all have the happiest of new years and i look forward to seeing you all soon again here on Selden crisis